Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we know that we bring baggage into this passage in this moment. Having, for some unhealthy examples of this growing up, others living an unhealthy example of it now. So we pray that you would help our hearts and our minds submit to this text, to let it inform us and lead us and to be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, dear beloved, we are gathered here this morning to joyfully witness the union of this man and this woman. We celebrate with them the beginning of their marriage. They will form a unique bond to each other through the holy union of marriage. God's word reveals the marital objective when we read a man and a woman shall leave father and mother and cleave to each other. They being two shall become one. You may be seated. Oh, wait, you're already seated. And if you didn't know, you're at a wedding. I didn't know if you knew that because I think many of you think, wait, I wasn't prepared for this this morning. I didn't know I was coming to a wedding. I'm underdressed. Why are you reading this beginning of a marriage ceremony to me? Well, it is true this morning. We are going to look at marriage. We will see in scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, a wedding together, not just of a man and a woman, but of a bride and a bridegroom, of a people, the church, and a man, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, yes, Marriage is what brings us together today. I will be brief here as we're going to be covering a lot of ground, but the main idea we will circle back to here is this. God's primary intention for creating the institution of marriage was to illustrate his love for the church. What I'm saying is this. By design, a husband and a wife in their best moments mirror to the world, Christ and the church. How does this happen? How does this come about? Well, to unfold our time, I, I plan to follow the flow of Scripture in here in Ephesians. So we'll see women called to submission, verses 22 through 24. We'll see men or husbands called 
to love, verses 25 through 29. And finally, we'll conclude by seeing a church called to Christ in 30 through 32. So first, women called to submission, verses 22 through 24. Now, if you want to be a complete killjoy, here's what you do. This coming Thanksgiving, what I'd like to see you do, and if you do this, please record it, but in the middle of the Thanksgiving meal, would you stand up on a chair in the middle of your family uh, with the aunts and the uncles and the grandkids and cousins there and take a glass like you traditionally do and you take your butter knife and you ting, 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 ting. When everybody's quiet, and calm and listening in that moment, what are you going to say? I want you to say just these words with no explanation prior or after. Just say this. I believe wives should submit to their husbands. And then just sit down. <laughs> you, you might as well have said, you know, Hitler was a good guy, after all. <laughs> you, you, you might as well have just, you know, with, they will look at you. Well, it depends on your family. But assuming your family's like mine and is so mixed. They will look at you as if you have horns growing out of your head and a pitchfork in hand. And why is this so? It is because what they will hear, what they will interpret you to say is this, that you believe women are inferior to men, that women are simply there to live for the beck and call of men, that with apron on, they're to cook and they're to clean and they're to be quiet. They're to be a slave in the bedroom as the man desires to be a woman is to live and to die miserable. That is what they will hear you say if you say these words. For our time that we are living in, anything that is short of complete and total equality in roles between men and women, it's considered to be an injustice at best, an evil at worst. What is taught in popular circles, especially in popular Christian circles, is, don't you understand, this is the 21st century man. Paul, after all, doesn't he say in Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female? I mean, so if you understand what Paul's getting at, doesn't that mean that now we don't have any sort of roles of authority? Everybody's on an equal plane. No, 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 no. When Paul says in Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. He's making it clear, my friends, that everybody comes into the gospel. It is available to all. It's not in hierarchy where men can make it in, but women can't, or or free can make it in, but slaves can't. No, the gospel is open so that slave and free and male and female may all enter in. But now that you've entered into the kingdom, it doesn't mean that you suddenly become asexual. Once you become a Christian, it doesn't mean... That you are no longer male or female. It doesn't mean that you no longer are whatever your ethnic heritage is. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you're no longer an Italian. You don't become not Italian ethnically once you become a Christian. You're just a Christian who also is male and free or, or slave or all these different categories. With their varying roles of authority that come along with them. Further, we need to understand, you and I need to gain an understanding that equality is not to be confused with roles or assignments or authority for, from God. For example, in, in my home, 
God loves, I believe God loves me as like he loves my children. He loves us both. But just because the Lord loves both my children and me tremendously doesn't mean all of a sudden that my children are on equal plane with me. No, for, for me to be a godly father, even though I'm equally loved and cherished by the Lord, I still have a role as a father to make sure that they submit to the rules that I've set in order of the house. No, if we were on equal planes, this, what, what, this would cause issues in the home. So submission then does not mean inferiority, for everyone must submit to someone. Listen to this, even with the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is, I would argue, submission. For example, the Son is not inferior to the Father, but he submits to the mission the Father has sent him on, doesn't he? The Father has told me, I'm going to do all that the Father has commanded me. And the Spirit then submits to the sending of the Father and the Son, so that even God himself submits, following and, and follows the leading of an authority. Everyone submits to someone, to some authority of, of, or another over us. Even the pastor of this church has men that he needs to be accountable to and submit to. And so it is with this understanding of submission, let us consider wives, these wives here that are sub, to submit to their husbands. Notice that the text says they are to submit to their husbands, not to every man. This is important. Women, hear me on this. Neither I, nor the elders, nor other men in this church are your spiritual head. Your husband is. If you have a husband, your husband is to be your spiritual authority. Not me, not others, because I sense that this has been taught in the past. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 points us to seeing Christ ultimately as our head. So if, if you do not have a husband, then, then ultimately your spiritual head goes straight up to the Lord. So it's not me or other men in this church body. I don't see that taught anywhere here in Scripture. Second, I want you to notice, Paul's call then for the wives to recognize the authority of their husbands is, did you see this phrase? And I don't know if you just skipped right over it, but as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. Another way of phrasing this might be as the NIV puts it, which may be more helpful. Wives, submit to your husbands, to submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So what is implicit about this? The same types of ways that we're submitting to Christ would be the same types of ways that we would be submitting to our husbands. Um, and, and therefore, just as the Lord would never call you to sin, neither would you walk in such a way that you're submitting to a husband's calling you to sin. Um, this may go without saying, but I need to say this, that wives, if your husband is physically or emotionally abusive, then you need to seek out help. Because to live under that and to go along with that is to partake with your husband in sin. And the Lord would never call you to that. And so if you're living with your husband who is abusive in, in, in any way, it won't get better. It will likely get worse. And so if you're in a situation where you are really being mistreated, then your church leaders are here for you. We are available to walk with you through this. But you need to know that there is a hope for things to change and to get better. 
So this passage is not asking women by submitting to their husbands to go along with sin, nor is this asking women to blindly with no spine go along with whatever your husband is saying or leading you in. The call in verse 24 is to submit and everything is not overriding everything else that Paul has called us to in Ephesians. I mean, Paul has said we're to love one another, to resist anger, to speak truth with one another. So wives, as you submit to your husband as unto the Lord, Scripture, as it calls you to, you would in the same time play a role in helping your husband see what he may not see. You can gently express your viewpoint. You are given the chance, you want to be like a cheerleader who's able to lift up your husband and encourage him, pointing him, you know, pointing him to Christ. Not, not when given the opportunity in public, pointing out his faults and his failures. No, that would just demean him and, and it will actually be detrimental to your relationship. I've been around men who seem so whiplashed by their spouses that you can almost sense in their face they just want to throw in the towel. Uh, they, they will not rise to the position of a leader within the home because their wife has made it clear that they are not welcome to lead the family. And on the other side of the coin, I noticed behind every good man is a godly woman. Behind every good man is a godly woman who's encouraging her husband to love Jesus more, to become a better leader in the home. This is a common denominator. So while the culture demeans men, I think the, the stereotypical picture, you know, from a lot of TV shows uh, is that men are, you know, to be demeaned. They're to be put down. They're basically those who just hang out on the couch and watch sports and drink beer all day. And, you know, in, in, in converse to this, Scripture is calling us, and as we'll get to men here in a moment, this is different. You women play a role, though, in being respectful, not cutting or demeaning, even if at times your husband seems to deserve it. I think how this passage gets applied to individual marriages can look different. I think the fact that Paul is vague here is not accidental. We're not expecting cookie-cutter marriages in the church, like every marriage needs to look this exact specific way. I think notice that Paul doesn't describe in great detail how this all gets worked out. You can have marriage where these roles are more formal. You can have a marriage where these roles are less formal, and, and that's okay. But what will be the common denominator is that they'll both have husbands who lead with authority and women who respect the role of their husband. I, I've noticed there are marriages where there is a, a, a wife who's very strong, has a really strong personality. She's very type A. Um, and she has very strong opinions on everything. And yet she still, even with her God-given personality, respects her husband and encourages him to lead. I've also seen marriages where a husband who has a very strong personality um, has created space for his wife to still be herself and make decisions as the Lord would lead her. And so both men and women, they need to be warned against letting this passage be ill-used, wrongly applied. I think Kent Hughes paints this picture where he says this passage in particular has been wrongly used. And he says the truths of this text have been perverted and abused and by distorted and sinful men. God's holy word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. 
I've seen couch potatoes who order their wives and children around like the Grand Sultan of Morocco. Adulterous misogynists who have the domestic ethics of Jabba the Hutt. Who cow their wives around with Bible verses about submission. Insecure men whose wives do not dare go to the grocery store without permission. Or who even tell their wives how to dress. So men and women, this is not what we are aiming for. This is not what this passage is calling us to. Let us positively see the calling of men now, the call to love. So we'll look now at men called to love in verses 25 through 29. I'll reread these to bring them to mind. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. If I could put this really simply, men, in just one brief little encapsulated sentence that you walk away with. Your goal, men, is to love your wives in such a way that they grow in holiness. The kind of love is that you want to have for your wife is that kind of love that she will grow to become more like Jesus because of you. You, you want to love her with a love that she doesn't deserve. To love, as Paul mentions here, like Jesus is, to, is, is a love that wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. It was unconditional. Key word, unconditional love that says, I will love you because I love you, period. When doing premarital counseling, I always bring up the difference between a covenant and a contract. And so uh, those of you who've been with me in premarital counseling will remember this. A contract is conditional. Contracts say, when you do your part, I'll do mine. As long as you're doing your part, I'll keep doing mine. The moment you quit doing your part, I will quit doing mine. That's a contract. And in marriage, that's not what it is at all. Marriages are covenants. And covenants mean that when you enter into that covenant, the call is to say, when you quit doing your part, I will keep doing mine. When you don't deserve love, I will keep loving you. When you frustrate me and irritate me, I will go pray and come back and love you. (laughs) And it's an oath-bound relationship of promise and obligation that says when you're going through your worst moments, I'm going to still love you. And in a healthy marriage, this is the most freeing thing. When you have a healthy marriage that's covenantally based, not contractually based, what it means You're free to be you. You can have a bad moment and your spouse is still with you, still rooting for you. They can be disgusted or frustrated or, you know, whatever with with what's going on, but they're ultimately rooting for you. So the godly and authority and leadership that a husband has is bound up with covenantal love. The role of Men leading with this sort of authority in their homes, this godly authority to really oversee the spiritual health of the home and to make sure that their spouse is thriving is so important. How important? Really important. Because 
as the last statistic I heard was that if, a, if you have a home with a husband and a wife and some children, if a child becomes a Christian, if one of the children becomes a Christian and the rest of the family are not, there is a 3% chance that the rest of the home will become followers of Jesus. If the wife becomes a Christian and the rest of the home is not, there's a 17% chance that the rest of the home will become followers of Jesus. If the husband becomes a Christian and the rest of the family are not Christians, there is a 90% chance that the rest of the home will become followers of Christ. You see how important it is that husbands lead with godly authority in their homes. If you don't think being a godly leader in your home doesn't make a difference, it plays a huge role. And liberal theology does not want to admit this, but there is something in the way that you men were created that when you lead in your homes, people thrive. When you lead godly lives in your homes, your children may come to faith or may stay in the faith. And The fruit of this in churches and in families will be found for decades. The picture Paul uses here to help us understand the kind of love that we are called to is similar to the nature of caring for your own body. For it's not only um, covenantal, it's not only unconditional, but it's also sacrificial. The chances are for you men that when you woke up this morning that you fed yourself, uh, you brushed your teeth, maybe you took a shower and so on. And you did all of that so that your body thrives. And this is how you are to view marriage. And so because of this, husbands, I think your homework could be this. I I, I think as you sit back thinking about my love for my wife needs to be sacrificial and it needs to be unconditional and covenantal. um, And it needs to be the kind of love where I'm trying to take care of her. I, I think your homework could be this. You could sit back with a pen and paper, maybe later do this. I oftentimes write things down because, to be quite honest, I will, I, I've thought very brilliant thoughts before, but I, don't, I can't tell you they were honestly brilliant because I forgot them. So I write them down so that later I go, okay, Thomas, don't forget this. What you can do is sit back and say, what can I do to help my wife walk with Jesus better? What is it that I need to do as a husband, spiritual leader in the home, What do I need to do to ensure that my wife is going to be able to walk with Jesus better? Does she need more resources? Does she need you to go through scripture with her slowly, maybe in the evenings? Does she need you to free her up to have a bit more Christian fellowship? Does she need you to cover a few chores so that she can get time alone with the Bible in hand? Does she simply just need affirmation to keep going? Perhaps it will nourish her if you sit down and listen to her struggles and help her see how the gospel is good news for whatever she is facing. Maybe your wife doesn't really value Christian things at all because she hasn't seen why they really matter to you in your life. So perhaps your way of helping your spouse get closer to Jesus is to first and foremost say, okay, I need to prioritize Jesus has to be number one in my life or my wife will never really be convinced that it should be number one in hers. So maybe that's where you need to assess. She's your wife. You know better than I do. She's not my wife. If you really want to know, maybe even just ask her. Say, honey, what is it that will free you up and help you 
Take the next step in following Jesus. And if you've had a poor model of what that looks like, maybe you need to get around other godly couples in this church um, so you can get a picture of this. So men, hear me, hear me out on this. There are godly men, there are godly marriages in this, in this church, and you could get together with them and ask them nitty gritty, what does this look like? What does it look like for you to love your wife? I mean, for example, you could say, you know what? My wife and I, we were debating and arguing. We were discussing, well, not arguing, but discussing. Do you, do you, do we go to, you know, she wanted to go to Skyway for dinner and I wanted to go to Zigzag, you know, for dinner. And, you know, we go back and forth and who, who, who's supposed to win this, this, you know, I'm the head, I'm the spiritual leader. Don't I decide? Yes, you do. You decide to love your wife and go to Skyway. It, it is funny, but, but, it, but in the funny joke, you see the point is you need to connect with other men and ask them those kinds of questions so that everything from finances to devotions to where to go for dinner, how does it look like to be a godly husband who leads? And if you need help reaching out to men and, and women in this church to help do that, please see, see one of the elders here. We'll point you in the right direction. I think there can be at times where us men, we're tempted to want to put this into a science and we're going to get back to Ephesians here, but just as you consider, you know, I, I, I desire at times things to be spelled out very clearly. I just need to know, just tell me what to do and I can check the box and I'm, I'm looking for, you know, a check sheet. I'm looking for a science thing. And yet at times marriage, you, you, you couples who've been married for decades and decades, you know, it's more of an art than a science, isn't it? Um, Thinking of just dancing for a moment, um, you know, some of you are are incredible dancers. I've seen some of the dancing that goes on with some of the members here in the church body. Um, and, and it's really interesting to me because as I see, whether it's ballroom dancing or, or uh, West Coast swing style, or there's various kinds, but it's always amazing to me because as the couple is dancing, they're dancing, you don't hear the husband barking at the wife. No, no, no. I said, stand there. Now move here. Now sway. And dip. what are you doing? I said, twist this way. It doesn't work that way. It's so gentle the way it comes about. It's all with the turn and push and pull of a hand, isn't it? So that he says, okay, we're going to go this way. And then you come and you sway. And then this. And every, people on the outside don't even, they're not even aware necessarily of who's leading in, the, in those moments. It just seems so organic, but yet somebody has to do the role of leading. Otherwise, the couple just steps on each other's toes, don't they? So it's really important there is a leader. But the way the husband does this is a beautiful art, and, and, and when done well, I think it's pictured in the words that Paul will say right here in verse 29. He says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So husbands, it's not just a love that is sacrificial and unconditional. It's a love that cherishes. Um, Peter puts it this way in, in his epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. You see how gentle that is? So that because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. As a, as a quick aside here to sing, single women in this church, single women who desire to, to marry or remarry at some point, I just want to encourage you 
If, if the person you are considering someday joining together with in marriage is not a fellow heir with you in the grace of life, as Peter says, this is not someone you want to marry. Women, you want men who will love Jesus. Just as you men, you need to join with women who love Jesus. But women, specifically, you want a man who really, really loves Jesus? Because if he really loves Jesus, he's really going to truly love you. And so, the person who's received grace and love from Christ will, by the power of the Spirit in him, be able to extend that type of love and grace to you and to others. So strong is it that the call for men to love their wives is mentioned here in this section three times. Men, your role in marriage is to have an unconditional love for your wife, a love that is sacrificial, a love that sanctifies, and a love that builds up your wife and cherishes her, actually feels affectionately for her. And so pray for that. Ask the Spirit to give you that. And if we really don't get it, Paul makes it very clear by circling back to verse 33, where he says at the very last verse here of this section, he says, however, let each one of you love his own, love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so men called to love their wives, wives called to respect their husbands. And now we'll conclude by looking at Christ as we see the church is called to Christ, our bridegroom, verses 30 through 32. Let me read these to you. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. How is it then that we've come to a place here where Paul can speak like this? Marriage? is actually really all about Christ and the church? I mean, really? Elizabeth Elliot, she wrote a book called Let Me Be a Woman. (laughs) Great title. Let Me Be a Woman. And Elizabeth Elliot in this, she has this long quote, but it works from creation all the way to marriage in Christ. Listen to how she explains this here. Creation has, as one of its fundamental themes, the pattern and rule of submission, power, and passivity, ebb and flow, generativity, receptivity. These are a few of the ways that these paired polarities that have been described, even the physical realm is founded on and held together with positive and negative attraction of atomic particles. Everywhere, the universe displays its division into pairs of interlocking opposition. We know that this order of rule and submission is descended from the nature of God himself. Within the Godhead, there is both the just and legitimate authority of the Father, the willing and joyful submission of the Son, and from the union of the Father and the Son proceeded the third personality, the Holy Spirit. He proceeds from them, not as a child proceeds from the union of a man and a woman, but rather as the personality of a marriage proceeds from the one flesh, what is described from the union of the two separate personalities. Here, In the reflection of the nature of the Trinity, in the institution of marriage, it is the key to the definition of masculinity and femininity. The image of God could not be more fully reflected without the elements of rule, submission, and union. In other words, through creation and marriage, we begin to learn something about God himself. This is why Paul, he looks at Genesis 
chapter 2. So the quote is from Genesis 2.24. And he sees this mystery that now has become clear. The call for man to leave father and mother and cleave to wife is in essence prophesying about Christ coming to be one with the church in union. Unity, unified as one. Now, if you simply go back and peruse this section in, in, in verses 22 through 33, just going through, you say, oh, sure, Paul's talking about husbands and wives. But then somehow, in the midst of talking about husbands and wives and marriage, he says, no, 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 I'm really, really, actually, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage between a husband and wife is connected with the overarching reason for it all. Look at verse 22. He says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its savior. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then again in 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There is something that has been a mystery regarding marriage that is now clear because of the gospel. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He writes, God does not exist to make much of marriage. Marriage exists to make much about the glory of Christ and his church. So just as Ephesians makes clear that the Jew and Gentile join together, revealing the manifold wisdom of God, well, so too, man and wife join together, revealing the gospel in wedding planning. Friends, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, refers to Christ and the church. Recall last Sunday that I said all the little stories are paying homage to the big story. Well, so too with marriage. All the little godly marriages are paying homage to the ultimate true marriage of Christ and the church. Friends, the reason Christians are really concerned with homosexuality and transsexuality, it's not about biology alone. It's not even really about politics. Hear me on this. It is because it is completely and utterly bound up with the gospel. At the very heart of the gospel is a marriage of two who are completely different joined together. Each with their strengths and their weaknesses. And only when Adam and Eve came together did God say it was really, really good. So to distort marriage in this way is to ultimately distort the gospel. For Paul to say when he reads in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, a man shall leave father and mother and hold fast a wife and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage then is deepened through the gospel. And the gospel is deepened through the marriage. It is almost as if God said, I don't know if they're really going to fully understand my love for them in the gospel. So, through this union of a man and a wife, and when a godly man really loves his woman, and when the woman really submits to her husband in love, and they're both joyful in this, people will only then begin to say, aha, I'm just now beginning to understand the kind of love Jesus has for you. Perhaps you're with us this morning, and you don't know if Jesus Christ is for you. Let me remind you of what Jesus has done to pursue you. Scripture says that you and I, the, the terms in which scripture paints us, we were like the spouse, the woman who went off and slept with other men. And in our sin, in our rebellion, we've spurned this marriage. And Jesus, our 
heavenly spouse who's holy and righteous has come to rescue you from the sin that would kill you. Your rebellion against him. This is what a good husband does for his bride. He lays down his life for the one he loves. This just happened in Puerto Rico this last May. Christopher Pierce, he swam out into the riptide to save his wife from drowning. And as he saw his wife and daughter from the shore, he recognized they were in a riptide and getting further taken out and out. And so he didn't even think. He ran to the water and he swam out there. His wife put it this way. He died a hero, first saving our daughter and then trying to save me from drowning in rough waters at the beach. Elsie said, he drowned in doing it. He gave his life for us. This is akin to what Christ has done for you, church. He was the sacrifice for you who turned from sin to trust in him alone. And not only this, this story doesn't end here, for he's currently doing it in the church, a a work of loving her. Do you see all the things that I've been mentioning about a husband, what a good husband does for his bride? These are all the same things that Jesus does for each Christian here. For the church, he has deeply loved her. He sanctifies her, cleansing her. He washes her with the water, which is his word, nourishing her, cherishing her. And one day he's going to present her, meaning you and I, blameless, spotless. I'm sure there are a few here who say, Thomas, you know, I'm not married. I have no intention of being married. So this sermon's not really for me. Well, I would disagree. To say that you're not married is only a partial truth. For you, if you are a member of the church, if you belong to Christ, you are married to him. You are a member of his body. You are united to him. You are one with Christ. You are part of his bride. Married to Christ. Because God's primary intention for creating the institution of marriage was to illustrate his love for the church. And by design, a husband and a wife in their best moments mirror Christ and his church. As I close, I want to close with how Christ has vowed that he will love and sanctify you. You know, in marriages, some of the times where people cry the most is in the vows, don't they? Um, I've, I, I love to hear some vows, and so I was reading through some. This particular man's vows to his wife caught my attention. He says, you are the apple of my eye. So I'm going to love you with a love that is fierce and wild. I'm going to pursue you with a passion that will bring the world to its knees. I'm going to wage war with your demons so that you can rest your head at night in peace. Men, this is the model. And church, this is what we have in Jesus Christ. One who fiercely and passionately gave himself for us. Would you pray for me and with me? Lord, our marriages are difficult at times. And they're our seasons of struggle. But we thank you for these words from Paul, which spur us on to see the reason for it all, even while boots on the ground, helping us to care for our spouse, to love and to respect. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen the marriages in this church, that you would keep us from sin. Father, I pray that 
out of the healthy marriages, that we will leave legacies that will last for generations to come. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.